This episode of Dear Asian Americans is brought to you by the Quarter Pounder with Cheese from McDonald's. It's QPC time. Did your mouth just water? The QPC is the burger that breaks the norms of etiquette, the burger that napkins were made for, the burger that's saucy, drippy, oozing with flavor, always cooked when you order. So the next time you want a mouth-watering burger, order the QPC from McDonald's. Did you know? There are treatments for COVID. If your loved one is 50 or over or has a chronic health condition, you're at higher risk for severe COVID illness. But early treatment can make COVID infection shorter, less severe, and help keep you out of the hospital. It could save your life. So if you have COVID symptoms, talk to a doctor right away and get treatment. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. And I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. Hope you and your family had a wonderful Thanksgiving break and had a chance to reflect on the year before us, thought of things to be grateful for, and had time to rest and to prepare for the rest of the year and the years ahead. We are really grateful for you for joining us. We're grateful for our wonderful listeners, our fans, our partners who allow us to do what we do. And we are so very, very grateful for all the guests who have made time and have spent their energy uh, sharing their stories with you and with us here on The Asian Americans. One of the guests uh, we're doing a replay of her episode is Barna Nutt, and she is a financial educator, a professional hype woman, and upcoming author of a brand new book called Money Out Loud, which has been doing really well in pre-sales and wanted to uh, practice gratitude for Berna, her story, and the things that she teaches us about money, budgeting, and life and business. Um, I've had a great opportunity to be her friend throughout this process, and it's really been a blessing to uh, learn with and from her. And so we hope that you can take away a little bit from my conversation with Berna, uh, originally aired a few months ago here on The Asian Americans. And if you have a chance, please go pre-order Money Out Loud by Berna Anut. And without further ado, here now is my conversation with Berna. Welcome back to the Asian Americans, everybody. Hope you are staying safe and healthy. And I've been saying that for like a year, which is a big problem. But as we now enter the height of flu season and things and, and places getting cold with COVID still happening, even though uh, certainly here in California, it's been safer. Continue to stay safe, continue to mask up wherever you go, especially for the little ones. They can't get vaccinated yet. So for them, for my kids, and for everybody, please continue to stay safe. I am so excited to talk to my guest today. And I know I say that about just about every guest, but my guest today shares a lot of things with me, primarily being that we went to the same undergrad at USC, ran in different generations, rather, but similar circles of student involvement with Asian American student organizations, and now is doing something that I am, I am so proud of her for and so excited for, which is way the hell off the beaten path and, and sharing all the lessons that she's learned so that our kids and our peers experience life a little bit differently from particularly the lens of financial education, personal finance education. She calls herself the financial hype woman, which is a, a title she created all for herself and by herself. We're going to get into her journey, her life, her career, and most importantly, what is she, what she is working on now, podcasts and book deals and all the amazing things that happen when you put yourself out there. And so super excited to welcome Berna Annette to the show. Hi, Berna. 
Hi, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super psyched. I'm jazzed. I'm hyped, you might say. Um, and it's really very honored to to be amongst amongst the fam, amongst the Dear Asian Americans fam. Oh, I, I am so excited. I, I guess before we go, uh, shout out, go on. Uh, shout out to Michelle Mijun Kim, who was yes. our connect. Um, she's She's been such an, I mean, I, I think in our own spaces and in all the things that we care about, it's been so amazing um, as challenging as the pandemic has been to be able to meet and connect, uh, become friends with people on this journey of doing things that our parents didn't envision for us to be doing, mm-hmm. like having physical books at a Barnes and Noble. Yes. And I, I don't know, just amazing things that happen, obviously don't happen overnight, but we're seeing so much of it now. This year has been an extremely challenging year for our community, but at the same time, it's given much overdue recognition and attention on the people who have extremely intelligent things to say, Mm. because we all do have things to say. And more importantly than the people who have things to say, there are people who need to listen to this stuff. And and they are younger and even current versions, Berna, of people who look like me and you. Mm -hmm. Because all the stuff that we learned from when you and I were young, it wasn't from people who look like me and you. And so I I am so excited to get into all of that. And uh, let's start with your bit of your uh, Annette family background. Um, How did your family uh, become Filipino American. Uh, how did where did they land? And tell us a little bit about the earlier years of your life. Yes, of course. So I am Filipina American, daughter of immigrants, uh, born and raised here on unceded Ohlone territory, San Francisco Bay Area, South City, South San Francisco. For any of y'all, a uh, fellow very large Filipino community out in South City, um, but that's where I was born and raised. But further back from that. Uh, both of my parents were born and raised in the Philippines. My mom in uh, on the island of Mindanao in the province of Davao. And then my dad on Luzon in Manila. And they both did this sort of like Filipino-American half jump, not all the way to the mainland, but when they were in their teen years separately, my dad moved to Guam with his family. Um, and my mom moved to Hawaii with her mom. Uh, my goodness, my grandma on my mother's side single mother of seven children. And my mom is the only girl and she's in the middle. So their crew all went to Honolulu, which with a bunch of other Filipino, I mean, huge Filipino community, um, immigrant Filipino community in Honolulu as well. Huge Filipino immigrant community in Guam. They lived out a lot of their sort of teen years there. And then they met in San Francisco and had my brothers and me. And so they have sort of a kind of hybrid, like grew up in the Philippines and then moved to America. But did they really? Because it wasn't full on sort of assimilation experience until they came to San Francisco and kind of built their adult lives and then had us. And so a very interesting kind of roots from there. I always, my brothers and I always joke, and we used to joke about this in a funny way. Now I'm like, that was a sad joke to make. We'd always used to say like, we're Kirkland brand Filipinos. You know, we're like, we grew up very, yeah, I know. We grew up very assimilated. We, uh, you know, didn't, my parents were like, we're not going to teach you Tagalog because we don't want you to have an accent growing up. And I know a lot of folks listening to this podcast know that song. Um, not going to teach you Tagalog. Um, we're going to bring you to like Catholic church, but not really going to do many other cultural things. It was a lot of extracurriculars and school and dance and sports. Um, but we always joke that we're like, Filipino, kind of. Filipino, off-brand Safeway. Um, and that's something I'm still very much contending with. But that's that's the background. In, in light of sort of that cultural identity, which I think, like you said, 
many of my friends don't speak Korean. They, mm-hmm. I think they hit their point in their 30s or when they become parents and they go, wait a minute, there seems to be this gap. And yes. some of them have a very tough challenge of sort of dealing with that with their parents. Like, why didn't you? Mm-hmm. I, I think just in general, our parents want nothing but the best for us. And in their definition of wanting us to succeed by their definition in America, it was a racist self-defense maneuver because yep. they knew that racism exists. And perhaps at least if you can speak like them, maybe they won't be as mean to you or as terrible to you. And and can you imagine just that decision to withhold what makes you special? I, I know that you and I, as we sit here in 2021, in, in a whole new world, we have so much privilege to talk about mental health, to talk about identity and to talk about being us. I mean, hell, here are two Asian American content creators. Like this doesn't even exist 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. And to think about what our parents went through physically, financially, emotionally, but also in those moments of, I think the best way for my kids to survive in this new country is to lose a little bit of themselves. Yes. And so we're going to learn to make sandwiches with white bread and not send our kids with our food and all these things that are painful for us to think about, but they did it as it was a survival mechanism. And and that that makes me sad. What, what, What other types of expectations did they have for you? In, in terms of what they wanted you to do, you said you mentioned older brothers. Do they have different expectations for them versus you? Obviously, we know what you do now, but there's no way that they would have imagined oh ever any in any universe. <laughs> my parents either. I was like, I don't, I'm not quite what sure they know do? what they do for a living. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. um, I don't ask them for money so that they're, they're okay. That's all they want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. My. What, what did you want to be? And what did you what did they expect you to be? Did they encourage you to be? What did you want to be when you were younger? Oh, great question. What I wanted to be more than anything, I think the very first thing I wanted to be was an actress. I really wanted to be on Broadway. I wanted to, I wanted to learn how to act. I wanted to sing. And I was like, okay, so we got Leia Salonga and that's about it. Okay. I want to be Leia Salonga. And, um, my mom was sort of into that. She was, uh, used to sing in Hawaii. Um, when she was younger, she was like a, she was like a singer at a cocktail lounge. And then a lot of that got squished because she had, uh, her first child and all these responsibilities. And so it was a little bit of like, my mom was like, okay, maybe we can do this. But ultimately, Berna, you can pick between doctor, lawyer, maybe engineer. Because uh, I was actually talking about this with another friend when you were a younger sibling. And I'm, I'm sure there's all kinds of layers too, when you're a younger sibling inside of an Asian American immigrant family, you kind of subconsciously look around and you're like, okay, if I'm the last, especially if you're the daughter, there's a lot of roles that you have to fill that aren't really up to you. And so the roles I felt like I had to fill, my older brothers are you know, brilliant, lovely, wonderful people, but also they weren't incredibly academic um, and they were not incredibly like overachiever ambitious. As much as I think my parents wanted to put that on them, I think both of my older brothers are like, <laughs> no. And so I feel like I came into the world and they were like, here it is, our last racehorse. We're going to go for it. And so they were like, cool, we're going to put you in hella extracurriculars. Oh, you like to read? You're going to love to read now. Um, You like to write? Okay, do that on the side. But it's so cute when you tell us you want to be a veterinarian or a pediatrician. Let's encourage that. Um, And then it kind of changed. I was like, actually, I want to be a writer. I remember vividly being in a specific Chevy's restaurant on El Camino Real in South San Francisco. And we were at a dinner. And I don't know what compelled me. I must've been writing about this in my journal because I journal just obsessively and I still do. But I remember turning to my mom and being like, mom, I'm going to be a writer. And she was like, "Uh, 
no, you're not. Like, what was all that? We've been telling Lola and Lola, you want to be a pediatrician for a year. Like, we're doing that, right? You want to be like Dr. Chan in Kaiser in South City. You want to be that. And I was like, no, I want to be a writer. And it was very, it was a very tense dinner because they did not like that. Um, come to find out basically through the years that I'm an extremely stubborn person. And I was like, all right, I still want to be a writer, but I also am being raised as an intense super ambitious overachiever. And so with my family was like, well, if you want to write, you're going to be the best goddamn writer. And if you're, if you want to go to a school, you're going to go to the best communication school and you know, just all the things. And so very much grew up in the intensely type A overachieving honor system, honor society, gifted kid track. And that is still something I'm unpacking to this day. It's it's me and my therapists are always like, okay, let's outweigh, you know, like it gave us a lot of good things, taught us a lot of good things, also taught us a lot of terrible shit and just unaligned, very colonized stuff. And so still, still unpacking that. There's so much there. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, the, the biggest thing I, I take away is the world is gray. Money's good. Money's bad. Left, right. And I think the, the world seems to be uh, even going towards even a more polarized state. But I think it's okay to be gray and it's okay to be and, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's okay to be grateful for everything your parents did, but wish they did like 90% of their stuff differently. Yeah. 100%. But we also have the benefit of hindsight, of new information, of privilege that they didn't have, but you are who you are based on those experiences, right? And I think that's one, one other note uh, that you just mentioned is you're, you're very open in, in all of your platforms about the fact that you talk to your therapist and that yes. you uh, work with somebody to help you talk through your stuff. Uh, you know, I think it's plug, I guess, even for your, your sponsor on a show, even that's not yours, you, you work with one <laughs> yes. to, to help other people get the help that they need. Yes. Uh, and, and so I, I think it's wonderful. Um, how, how did you end up, uh, you initially went to Cal, and then you transferred down to USC, you, you did mass communications, and then public relations, which is far from any of the stuff that we talked about. Oh my God, yeah. Uh, how, how did that happen? <laughs> Basically, I think my parents understood that I was, even if even if I had the grades, I wouldn't be down to do anything related to math or science. I'm all words, all feelings all the time. What I really wanted to be was the editor-in-chief of Seventeen Magazine. That was my dream. That's the one that I like settled on in high school and I started bothering Seventeen, like starting in high school. I did some stuff for them in college. Um, I, it was, I remember like looking though at like my college acceptances, I really wanted to go to USC. That was my dream school because of the communication school, because of Annenberg, because of LA. I thought I maybe wanted to do like get into maybe celebrity public relations or something. Um, but then I also got into Cal, which like as, it's an incredible school and also grew up in a, like friggin' type A honor society kid in the Bay Area. Cal is, huh, huh, it's like one of the, oh my God. And so I honestly like, Going, I went to Cal for a semester to try it out because I was like, there was a little bit of that, like, if I got in, I want to be able to tell people that like, I went to I'd try it. But then the dream of USC was too strong. And so I ended up transferring after a semester, which was very confusing to everybody, all my family and friends. Like, why would you want to go to this like, super expensive private school when come on, Cat Berkeley, that's the freaking holy grail. And I was like, guys, I want to write. So that's how that happened. And then I, uh, at USC, I did a lot of journalism, public relations things, and then jumped right into the magazine industry right after college and then jumped right the hell out as soon as I could, because it was very scary, but, oh, that's another podcast. I, I have insider information on this because it was also my lived in experience, but you were very actively involved 
with student organizations at USC. And yes. I, I don't think we realized it then. I, it certainly took me a very long time to realize how fortunate we were. As, as, as many challenges as I have with my beloved school for, for all the, the stuff that they do and don't, the resources for student services, the support and the infrastructure with clubs and with other organizations, particularly for Asian Americans, of which I think Asians overall were, were more than a quarter of the school, we had things that other schools dream of having, and, and we have, you know, support that we had. You were a part of Troy Philippines, or as, as we more lovingly call it, Troy, Troy Phi. I, I was a part of the, the, the Korean drinking mafia back in the day. Love that. Also known as KSA, <laughs> which my mom blames everything that's wrong with Jerry he learned from college. The drinking and the smoking and all that <laughs> other stuff. All the fun stuff. I don't smoke anymore, by the way. I don't want DMs. Stop smoking. <laughs> How did that play and contribute to your identity being at a place where it's rather diverse yet also separate and segregated at times as as many people who have gone to USC or similar schools will will, will appreciate for for me it was a pretty unique experience i was born in korea i came here when i was 8 so like i wasn't as assimilated as some of my other friends who were born here but w- were there points or I mean, what are some of the memories that you have of your troy fi experience that still helps you today or that helped you at some point in your career make a decision one way or the other Yes. Oh my gosh. I like. I always like to tell people that I've never been more Filipino in my entire life than the four years that I was at USC because Troy Fi was that was my social experience. That was my life. Um, I remember I was I was a spring admit to USC, and I went to our orientation in December. And the first friend I met on our tour around USA, I remember we're standing in front of Tommy Trojan, and the tour guide was like, "Does anybody know?" like why his name is Tommy Trojan and why he's holding. And there was one girl who knew all the answers. Um, her name is Erin. I'm calling you out, Erin. Hello. I love you. I see you. And she knew all the answers and she knew all the stuff about Troy, about USC. And I look over and I'm like, oh, she's Filipino. And I'm here with my parents. She's here with her parents. And so I'm like watching her talk. And then of course I look, her parents and my parents are already talking. Of course, because the Filipinos always find each other everywhere. And so Erin and I ended up becoming friends. We're like, oh my God, you're going to USC in the spring. And she was the one who was like, you should really come to these general meetings for this organization called Troy Philippines. And I was like, what, what? And she basically, Troy Fi then became my entire social center. But I do remember probably three or four weeks into the semester, I've like gone to a bunch of general meetings and somebody who I'm still good friends with to this day, and they feel bad about this, but they go up to me and they're like, oh my gosh, like, it's been so cool to have you around in Troy Fi. Like, uh, just so happy to be here. I think you know where I'm going with this, Jerry. I think you know. I was like, thanks. It's been odd. Like the parties are so fun. I'm learning so much. They're like, it's just so cool that like a black woman just wants to know more about the Filipino culture. And I was like, oh, got it. Got it. Got it. Um, I am Filipino, quote unquote full, as they say. I am not anything else besides Filipino. And they're like, what? But they were not the first person to also say that. Like they said that in the conversation, other people were like, totally blah, blah, blah. And I was like, "Um, so I was known for a few weeks as the black girl who hangs out with all the Troy Philippines kids. Um, Rough. But beyond that, then I got very involved. And of course, like the cultural nights and the dances and the skits and the learning. And it was for the first time in my life, like a joyful experience to learn what it is to be Filipino. And it was a social experience. It was educational. It was like engaging and cool. It was cool. And, and part of the social contract to become more into your Filipino-ness. Whereas I feel like growing up in the Bay area, yes, huge Filipino cultural, um, presence, but also lots of pressure to deny it 
and to push forward and assimilate. And so it was it was deeply educational experience in a lot of ways being in Troy Fi. I think it's wonderful. And and if young folks are listening, there's also, as you mentioned, a part of our community that is very hesitant to identify as your cultural or or at least have the, the cultural group be your primary social circle on campus and you know, read into that however you want. I, I think we all have had friends who either have never come to a Troy Fire or a KSA meeting, even though we've invited them multiple times, or, right. you know, they, they only have white friends and they're like, oh, you know, don't remind them that I'm Korean or, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I think, I, I hope it's better now. And I hope that there's, I, I know it's better now. I know it's more inclusive now, but, but I think those places are actually sometimes where people like, you know, in, in your case, like really discover that there is this rich community that is a different kind of Filipino-American identity than your parents' generation. You know, there are Koreans that are born here, born somewhere else, adopted, mixed race. And we all sort of just said, hey, you know, we're going to try to figure this out together and mm-hmm. just, you know, really have fun doing it. Obviously, a lot, lot of social components to it. But, you know, that made my experience 20 years ago, 15 years ago in, in college and, you know, really still shapes a lot of the work that I do. And even many of the guests that we've had on this show are either friends from that time in my life or friends because of other people that I met then who still are helping each other and supporting me and just sort of, you know, watching each other grow. Because I think a lot of our peers, even then, that was still segregated, in my opinion. Like, we're going to do our cultural stuff with the club. But when I go to class and when I go to recruiting, when I think about my future, I'm going to leave the Koreanness at the door. Yes. I'm going to have a different... Of course, right? Like, Friday morning is a different Jerry than a Friday night Jerry, right? Uh-huh. Like, and now now we have words for stuff like that. But like, uh-huh. you know, back then it was like, I, I think that was still, and, and I hope the students t- today feel that there's more of an overlap of Venn diagram of who you truly want to be and what the world expects you to be. And, and so for you, it took some time and you worked for big brands and small brands and, you know, ultimately now on your own 100% you know, working with the brands from a different perspective. But you you mentioned briefly earlier, you went into journalism and then you got the heck out. Where did you maybe condense the first five to seven years of your career before you decided to make the jump and, and take us through sort of the journey that eventually led you to believe that the only way for Berna to be Berna was to have Berna and the company name? <laughs> yes. Oh boy. I would say, so I went, like you said, I was in magazine journalism right after college. I was specifically, I was the executive assistant to the editor in chief at 17. And I was like, this is it. This is it. You guys, this is where my whole life begins. The Disney music starts and I'm, I'm twirling in a meadow. It's all happening. And that was rough because then that was my first experience in that, especially when you work for a big company with a big reputation, at least at the time, because, you know, magazines were still a thing at the time. Um, that what you, what it is perceived that you do and the company you work for is very different from what you do every single day. And so the concept of like using communication to help teen girls, that's all I wanted to do was very different from, I am helping a lot of Jewish women in New York yell at each other every day and just, and just fight all the time. And I'm sort of their referee, uh, horrifying. Um, I learned a lot of incredible things. I made a lot of very close, incredible friends there. Then I was like, this not really for me. I ended up going to um, jumping that ship, much to the horror of my parents, because they were like, wait, we can at least brag about Seventeen Magazine. Like, I don't know where else you're going after like, okay, fine, be a journalist, but be a journalist for something we can brag about. 
um, I jumped ship and I started working for youth programming, for camps, for the YMCA, for small organizations like that. And um, while all the while being a freelance video producer and freelance writer, and then a few years into that, uh, I, I just basically spent like four years yelling about teenagers and teen media on the internet. And um, a old connection from Seventeen Magazine then was like, hey, I'm at Instagram and we're building out our teen media team. You scream about teen stuff on the internet. You seem to know the teen, the, the youths. Um, and so she sort of uh, recruited me to work at Instagram. I worked at Instagram for two years. Teen community lead there, which basically meant I translated teen culture and teen speak to the technical teams. I literally, I explained memes. I explained trends. I explained like phrases and like why the Snapchat hot dog is such a big deal. And I would literally facilitate conversations between young people and the engineers because the engineers are like brilliant, but also teenagers scare the shit out of me. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. And that in that world is when I started to go like, all right, well, I'm getting paid tech money now, which is awesome. And I'm back in the Bay Area. What is budgeting? Maybe it's time to get a hold of my $38,000 of student debt and $12,000 of credit card debt that I racked up in New York City, not knowing shiz. And so that's when I started to hit the University of Googles and was like, oh, personal finance? Oh, bloggers? Podcasters? What's this? But what I found was that none of them looked or sounded or spoke or felt like my life experience at all, which I know, Jerry, you and I were just talking about how much we relate on that kind of thing. So that's pretty much what got me the condensed versions is how I got to where I am. I was like, I think if I just start to share money from the perspective of myself, a woman, a person of color, a child of immigrants, so many of my identities are not in the finance world that you see. And so if I start to share, maybe people will be into it. And they are so far, thank goodness, pretty, pretty into it. So that's good. I think it's amazing. You know, we are, are technically what, what people would call us content creators, right? but without the context of who we are and what we've lived through, it doesn't mean anything, right? And, and I look at a magazine like Seventeen, and I'm not their target demographic, but what I do know is that a broad media company, whether it's TV or magazine, has to create, come up with stuff that is broadly acceptable and relatable. And so when we talk about who controls media, print, digital, TV, I don't care what it is in this country that is broadcast in a public or very attainable format as a magazine might be, they're not making specific content for brown girls or Asian men or LGBTQ community or black people, right? Like they're just saying, hey, this should apply to everybody. And, and because of the history of how these companies and institutions have been formed, we're not there. Technically, maybe like you said, you were the exe exe executive assistant to the, the editor in chief. So like you were technically in their room, but were you allowed a voice? Yeah, different conversation, right? Very different. And, and, and so I, I think, you know, looking at your history, it is almost perfect in hindsight that you had these experiences that built up this pain point of, I know the game because you worked at Instagram. You want to talk to your peers because you lived it. And then here you were existing in a world academically and professionally in settings where we were all expected to somehow believe everything was universally accept or widely, uh, you know, relatable. So there's a lot of people listening who either, and, and we've talked about this offline too, sort of what we're seeing now with either people quitting their jobs to pursue perhaps something that you're doing, that I'm doing, 
or at least doing it on the side because work from home, ain't nobody know what you're doing on the side. Yeah, um, whatever you want. Power to you. What did you do to prepare to make the jump? What sort of fears did you have? What sort of conversations did you have with your siblings, your parents, your community members that helped you feel okay? Because then you packed up your bags and traveled for a little while. Yes. Oh, man. So that the leap for me, the quote unquote leap was very interesting because I sort of jumped and la- like I landed in a totally different I jumped without understanding where I was going to land at. I didn't mean to like land into entrepreneurship, but to to back it up a little bit, I was working at Instagram, learned all the financial things um, and started to learn, got frustrated, started making content that built up a little bit of steam. And then I met my, my partner at the time and we were like, Hey, we have student loans and they suck and financial education is weird. Do you want to try to pay off our student loans together? And so basically we worked as hard as we could and got really obsessive about finance together uh, and so that we could pay off our student loans at the same time and then save up to travel for a year. So at the end of 2018, 2017, we both put in our two weeks slash two months, whatever. Um, and then we told our families like, guess what? We are, we're debt free now and we have this giant travel savings that we built together and we're just going to go. We're just going to quit. That was now my partner at the time being a cis hetero white man from the Midwest. His parents were like, cool, that sounds wild and chill. And my parents were like, are you joking? Why do you keep doing this to us? Like, first you like go to a great university and you want to leave because you have a dream. And then you have this job and you want to leave. And now you're on Instagram and you want to leave. Like, what is this? They were horrified, 100%. And they had a lot of questions as to how are you going to feed yourself? What's after this? What are you going to do when you're abroad? You're going to stop working? So then what are you going to do when you're abroad? Are you going to enjoy it? Like, what the hell is that? And so um, a lot of questions, but also I think at this point, they knew that I'm just very stubborn about the things that I want. And um, I went anyway. And they, you know, I think my family, my parents were the most, not resistant, just very like, all right, Berna, like... Things, things seem to work out, but like you're, I don't even know what to say to people now when they talk, when I talk about what you're doing. Um, friends and community were very, very supportive, especially because I was kind of couching it all in the like, we're debt free. We're doing this in a very financially responsible way. People were like, whoa, shit, I didn't even know you can do that. And so when I got back at the end of 2018, that's when definitely my my family for sure were like, so then you're you you didn't burn any bridges at Instagram, right? You didn't burn any bridges at Facebook. You're you're gonna go back and get the Facebook money. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I feel like maybe we've got some steam on this financial education thing. Um, and so it took a couple months of me kind of kind of telling my family, like, yeah, I'm gonna go back to him full time. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, but also exploring, like you said, like, what would it mean to be a full-time content creator? And that was, that was a decision I made around like Christmas time, 2018, that I was going to do this for real, for real, and haven't looked back since. And my parents still cannot tell you what the hell I do. Um, but the book helps. The fact that I have a book deal, they were like, oh, okay, years later, she's a writer. That's what she does. Okay. <laughs> Figured it out. Full circle. Full circle. Um, <laughs> exactly. It, I, I think it's fascinating. And I, I know that sometimes for us and even even more so for younger friends, brothers, sisters, cousins in, in the community, it's hard for them to relate to what's important to our family and, and our and our parents' generation. And so we often joke, you need to have a brand name so I can tell the moms at church or uh-huh. 
on you, TV. You, you haven't made it unless you're you're in the Korea Times, right? Like something that's important <laughs> yeah. and relevant to them. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care if you've been in Forbes. Like, are you are you in the Korea Times? Like, uh-huh. and then we joke about it, but I think it's also can you again going back to it's like sort of what our parents went through. Like, we have a hard time because technology is changing so quickly of understanding what's fresh, what's important. Even in the last six months, the world has changed, right? Like everything has changed. And, and so imagine doing that, coming from a different country and a different generation, poor, post-war, as a refugee, what have you, and then to keep up with everything while trying to put food on the table and manage a system of trying to get your kids into good school. Like the only thing that they have refuge in is for them to take pride in their biggest asset, which is you. Yes. And so if it doesn't make sense to them, I, I think it's on us as kids to make it as relatable to them. I, You know, like when I left a post-MBA, very comfortable job to do this, mm. and they, they still do don't this? know. Yeah. I, I think they know. I, I kid. I, I think they know, right? Like <laughs> they, they know what a speaker is. They know what a podcaster is, right? Sure. Like what I talk about and how like the, the the content that I share, like why it's even marketable that's a whole different conversation because i generally talk about our lived experience as is immigrant kids but the, the thing that you do is a little bit more universal yet it requires a contextually rich and relevant touch as you said that the phrase that you always say is the finance content world is hella male hella pale and hella stale yes. and so if you don't know what that means it's old white guys have been trying to tell us how to live our lives and how to manage our money and they've defined for us what leadership means, what business means, what good is for a very, very long time because of structural racism, really, and and structural systems that didn't let women go to school, didn't earn. I I saw a stat, you probably know this better than I do. Um, In our parents' lifetime, when our parents were born, women in America were not able to have bank accounts in their own names. Mm -hmm. And so that's not history. That's present day people have to dealt with. So Yep. To empower the next generation at the at the intersection of your audience, which is women and women of color, mm. more particular, that advice that we see on the bookshelves at Barnes and Nobles, uh, uh, prominently featured, isn't going to work for you. When did you know that there was an audience that was waiting for you, and mm. that you were actually the audience too? Oh boy, that's a good question. I think when I when I first sort of came into the realization like, huh, maybe hella male pale stuff is like the fact that they're that it is so hella male pale stale was even a problem. Like it's not really something it's not something I immediately recognized. You know, like I was I would tell of course to gosh, my my own detriment, I would tell some of the like techie bros that I worked with, like, hey, I'm starting to get into finance. Dumb, Berna. Don't tell the techie <laughs> bros you're getting it. Are you joking? Are you kidding me? Um, I'm starting to get into personal finance. I'm starting to learn. Oh boy, here comes the unsolicited, sometimes solicited, mostly unsolicited recommendations. It was all the Dave Ramsey and this and the that and the blah, blah, blah. All these men writing books and podcasts. And I was like, okay, I guess so. I wasn't really questioning it. And it was in um, actually a a person of color's book, Remit, Remit, Remit Safety. I will teach you to be rich. I'm sure you know it. Um, there is like two lines in a random chapter in there where he talks about um, his family, the fact that he has a Southeast Asian background and his family and something having to do with like family money habits. And for some reason, that little mention rocked me. Like I was just in this sort of like, I'm learning about finance. And then the like two second mention of his culture, I was like, oh, wait a minute, 
that hit differently. That hit me differently. Like, and then it's sort of like, you know, if you're, I don't know, like the whole world's in black and white and then you see a little, you see like a rose and you're like, what? I've been missing that this whole time. I thought everything was fine. Like, why is that hit differently? That's when I was like, that's, then that's missing from everything else. And, but then the, the moment that I realized that there might be an audience for what I have to say about it is I had been, while I was learning all of this stuff, um, you know, lots of people are like, well, when you start budgeting, you pull up an Excel sheet and you do the, the thing with the boxes and the numbers. And I was like, gross, I hate it. I'm a writer. I'm a communicator. I'm going to open up a Google Doc and journal to myself every time I have a paycheck and journal with words and my feelings, what I'm doing with my money. Um, I called that document Felicia's wallet because by Felicia at the time was very big. And everyone was like, where's Felicia going? Like, I want to see her passport. I was like, I want to see her wallet. This bitch is rich. So I called it Felicia's wallet. I went on Instagram one day and I was like, it, that, the document got so long to like, it got to like maybe 60 pages at that time. And I was like, what if I just like talked about it on my Instagram? Not, a, I'm not at all a content creator. It was normal Instagram, like family and friends and dog's life. Um, but I was like, I'm just going to post it like a little boomerang of me scrolling through the document and explaining to people like, hey, I've been doing this thing. I've been learning about finance. Uh, I have debt. Just crazy. I'm not melting saying it out loud. But here's this document. Here's what I've been doing. The reaction to that was wild. Like it, it really sort of that kind of post was like, oh my God, the people from middle school really are still looking at my content because they're coming out of the woodwork saying stuff to me. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, you guys were lurking this whole time, I guess, on my like very non-public, you know, not content content. And it, it wasn't just people that I grew up with who look, actually like look and feel and, 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 you know, were raised like me. It was women of color from all corners of the internet being like, my friend tagged me in this. I can't believe there's a woman of color even writing about money. I, I can't believe you put your, like, you're, you're, if you stop the boomerang at a certain point, you can see the numbers on there. You can see your paycheck. Are you okay? Like, what's happening? Um, but so many DMs, secret little DMs of people being like, I don't want to leave a comment, but I just want to say how much this impacted me. Um, I feel weird leaving a comment about money because I like, I don't want people to know that I'm like thinking about it, but I just want to say that's the first time I've ever seen a woman of color say anything about money. And it's like, it was the secretive whispery nature of the, because it was like the loving comments were great, but the secretive whispery nature of the DMs really made me go like, okay, we, we can do things to make noise and like all being community out loud, but it's the people in the shadows that I think need this the most. You know, if I'm, like I mentioned before, I worked in camps for a long time. And one thing that you learn as a camp counselor is that if you want the shy kids to do the worm on stage, you got to do the worm on stage first. And so I was like, I can do that. I can be the person who's like, yeah, I'm going to talk about money out loud and talk about my mistakes. And there's going to be people, people who publicly love it and say things out loud to me. But then, then there's a contingency of people who are like, thank you from the, the, the depths of their financial shame. So it's amazing what happens when you share content that really shatters the paradigm of what people expect you to share. I, I experienced something similar when I was sharing a lot of stuff on LinkedIn about fatherhood and about taking time off. People wouldn't like my stuff because the algorithm will show your colleagues that you liked it, but they would DM and be like, yo, I really resonated your, your, you know, and, and at a point I was like, yo, you could like it and help the algorithm do its thing. But like, I understand why mm -hmm. you want this to be, you know, because again, when you're independent, as you were at the time, and as I was at the time, we, we also have to acknowledge the privilege that comes with not having to fear what the corporate repercussions of somebody reading your post is, because unfortunately, we still live 
nobody will admit it, but you live in fear of being fired for saying the wrong thing, for you know having the perception that you don't work hard enough, or mm-hmm. all these things. And as, as as challenging as being an entrepreneur is in many cases, the freedom for us to say what we want and not have no repercussions, but being okay with dealing it ourselves, because I'm going to call your boss, well, it's me, like that's different. And I think that's super empowering, especially given that your topic is really empowerment through education in this financial literary sense that, again, going back to our parents, they didn't know any of this stuff, right? Like banking's different in the Philippines and banking's different in Korea and Mm -hmm. the internet didn't exist, right? Like (laughs) what the hell are checks, right? Like uh, (laughs) who who writes a check anymore? What is that? A checkbook? Right. And balancing a checkbook was like, oh my God, you know, like just look into your app, right? Like, yeah. So, you know. Right. Like, and again, I remember it's like, wait a minute, when the debit card came out, they're like, you're supposed to put down every debit card transaction in your checkbook to balance it. Like, look, that sounds like a lot of work. There's a digital thing here. <laughs> and how many things do I got to track? And then now right. it's like, now it's the opposite. I have nieces who are like, so what, why, why use paper though, when you could just be boop bop? And I'm like, girl, I don't know. Mm, I don't know what to tell yeah. you. <laughs> we just did. So we're we're getting close to the end of our conversation. You have done, and, and the reason how we connected, and um, again, shout out to Michelle, is that you have launched a brand new podcast, taking all the lessons that you've learned. Chris Doe of the Future said something in he probably doesn't even remember he said it, but he he said something to reach more people, you have to teach more people, mm, and, and that's okay. what you've been doing on your own brand, and, and now you've partnered with Betches Media. Um, and, and they focus their content towards millennial and Gen Z women on a variety of topics. They've decided to partner with you for their financial content, which is a super brilliant move. Podcast launched as we record a week ago. I don't know when you're going to be listening to this, but it uh, launched at the end of October. Great content talking about things. Most importantly, I think you have such a strong and unique personal brand that resonates. It's not just the fact that most of the financial advice content or just life advice content in general is written by older white men. It's the tone through which you can actually communicate and to relate. And a lot of the language that you use would probably be called unprofessional or not correct for talking about such a heavy topic, but you have to speak the language of the people that need to hear it. And, and so tell us about Money, Please. That's the name of the show. Um, what do you talk about? What are you excited for? Your Instagram at HeyBurna is just, I, I hope you take naps between. Actually, you, I know you take naps because you tell people you take naps. I love but you're, naps. But you're high energy. And, <laughs> and I think people love following you. Even in the short few weeks that I followed you, your, your, your count has gone up, which means you're reaching more people. You're empowering more people to own their financial literacy and to own their debts and then to make positive change. Tell us about the podcast. Yes, of course. So that was beautiful. I'm like, I'm going to snip that and send that to Betches. That was so nice. Um, I am now the new host of Money, Please, which like you said, is a podcast I'm doing in partnership with Betches Media and also When's Happy Hour, which is like Betches sort of like career and job focused arm. This is a sort of the official podcast of that. And it's entirely money stuff that we never learned. Um, at the most basic level, it's money stuff that no one ever taught us. And we should, should have been learning in our schools, in our public schools, in our curriculum. And maybe we, some people have, have pointed out, maybe you have learned it. It just, it was not taught to you in a way, like you said, that is relevant, that sticks, that is exciting, or even is even contextually interesting or relevant to your own, like connects to your own life. And so 
at the most basic level. I'm like, it's just us breaking down the basics, catching up on adulting the way that we were supposed to be doing ourselves. Um, I'm really just translate, like going topic by topic and very basic personal finance stuff and translating what I'm learning and hearing from, you know, the hella male pale stale world and, and putting it in a medium that we understand. And also the most joyful part is taking the mic and passing it to other financial experts, like actual experts, because it's important to say, and I say this at the top of the um, podcast and some of the episodes, and I've repeated a lot. I am not, I don't have a financial background. I'm not the CPA. I don't even have an MBA, like none, I have none of the cool acronyms, but I do have a lot of incredible financial expert friends who are the CPAs, um, who are the financial therapists, who are debt experts and investing experts. And so I get to pass the mic. And also I get to ask them the explain it to me like I'm five questions. Like again, camp counselor, you have to have no shame in looking like the stupid one if you are, if you're leading a community. And so I'm like, okay, so what, like someone describes something and I'm like, it's word number three that you lost me. So you're going to have to go back. We're going to have to unpack that. Um, we are walking through budget. We, budgeting was our very first episode with the incredible Tiffany Liche, AKA the budget Nista budget expert who used to be a preschool teacher. Like it could not be any more soothing and like easy. And she's so fun. And then we're talking about financial trauma. We're talking about debt, investing, savings. And hopefully it, this shows that I'm trying to look at it all also through the lens of my own personal experience as a first gen daughter of immigrants, woman of color, person who is not, does not understand things in the context of hella male pale staleness and needs things to be broken down by pop culture references or like uh, inappropriate references or like weird words or internet memes. Like that's the language that we speak there. So hopefully folks enjoy it. Um, and it's the first season. So we're just, we're just getting started, but we're laying the base. As I've shared before, it's not more important than what you share, I think it's really how you share it. And the most important all, it's who shares it. We talked about earlier this importance of gray and this importance of and. I think the instinct, instinctual thing for many of us to do is to get angry at our parents for not having taught us this. Well, I think relatively speaking, they've did far greater things looking at how we fared than our peers whose parents went to the same Ivy League schools or same great institutions and marginally had such an advantage from a you know uh, systemic perspective. And so now it's on us to be grateful for everything our parents did, but then to also change the damn game. Mm -hmm. Not just, I know we talk about our kids a lot and I know I dedicate this show to my kids, but we, we still have an opportunity to change the way that we view money, the way that we view life. A lot of the things that I think you share from sort of a hesitancy perspective is really rooted in the expectations that we think that we were taught to live up to. And yes, it's good to question that, but also question why they exist in the first place and who put those ideas there. Like, yo, like if you don't own a house by X, who cares? Like it actually <laughs> might, you know, like yes. if you follow Ramit, like he's a proud renter like yes. for 15 years because he's like, that doesn't work for me, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so sort of understanding that. And I think you, him, and so many other content creators that, understand that it's equally important, perhaps the most important that it is you who shares a story to reach the people that other people can't, because they simply don't know what it means to be a Filipino immigrant kid in this country, trying to fit in 
and live up to the expectations and you've checked the boxes of going to the schools and working at the companies. Right. And then ultimately realizing just the same way that I did, the only way we're going to find alignment is if my name's in the door. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we are actually in, I would love to see more entrepreneurs. Not every startup needs to be startup VC backed. Like to right. start a business, do what means, you know, something important to you. And definitely on a different conversation on a different show, which is a big hint to something we're working on. Oh. We're going to talk more openly about running a personal brand business. Right. Um, Berna makes money. People pay her money to talk. People mm-hmm. pay me money to talk. Mm-hmm. We weren't raised with that. No. <laughs> so we, we don't value ourselves properly. We don't, <laughs> we, we negotiate against ourselves. Like all yes. these lessons that I think not only do we teach, but also teach through doing and um, teach through sharing. So yes. uh, I, I am so excited for so many things. I am excited for your new venture. I am your, excited for your new book. Welcome to Publishing World, folks. The book's going to be out in two years, not next week. So you got to wait a little <laughs> bit if you want Berna's new book. See y'all next um, decade. But it's, but it's coming. I'm excited for what is to come. Uh, you run a newsletter business. You have a membership. You do consulting and coaching on your own. You run far beyond the fun videos uh, to come full circle with Instagram. You're doing a proper campaign with at creators at Instagram. Yes. And this, if you've heard the rest, obviously, if you made it to this far in the interview, far, far different than the dreams that her parents and even Brenna had for herself growing up. So wherever you are in life, know that, what has it been, three years? Mm-hmm. A thousand days can change the complete trajectory of your life pandemic included. And so, Bert, I, I am so grateful that we connected, that we shared stories today. And, and I would love to uh, help you, ask you to help us close out the show in the way that we do yes. and to leave a message of inspiration, motivation, and, and thoughtfulness to our audience and, and help us close out the show by saying something to our community with the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Oh, wow. Okay. Ooh, the pressure. Oh my God. I'm sweating immediately. Okay. Dear Asian Americans, are you okay? You okay? We're okay out there? You good? Have you eaten? Have you napped? Do you know that you deserve a nap? Do you know that you deserve a thousand naps? I wish I was in just a giant sleepover with all Asian American friends and we could all just give each other permission to freaking nap. Because I, I am a personal finance creator. I'm a financial hype woman. But I think the most important thing at the very end of all of this teaching about budgeting and saving and debt and investing and hyping you up about your financial wins, blah, 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 the most precious thing, the most luxurious thing is rest for us. It's time. Um, I was just writing the outro of my book, actually, and basically, and we talk about investing at the very end and, you know, it's all cryptocurrency, NFT, whatever. I think lots of noise, lots of helium, but I think... Dear Asian Americans, the most precious thing for us, the most revo- like financial revolutionary thing for us is rest. It's time. It's the luxuriousness of being able to sit on our laurels and understand what our value is and stop for two freaking seconds and give ourselves credit, uh, resource ourselves so that we can breathe and take care of each other. Like I think that's that's what I'm trying to get us to to achieve and to feel that is the sort of privilege that I want all of us to taste is like the privilege and the wealth of time and of rest. And so that is my wish for you. I hope that if you are on any type of financial journey, any kind of financial freedom journey, 
I hope that you're able to sort of calculate your why and your compass. And I hope that at the very center of that is your rest. It is your spaciousness and it is your peace. Cause that's, that's what I'm teaching towards. Um, and I hope that you value that in yourself too. Thank you so much. Follow Berna everywhere. It's at Hey Berna. You can subscribe to the Money Please podcast just about everywhere. You can find the podcast where you can go to Betches.com and find your uh, way that way. You can also support the work that Berna does by finding ways to actually and, and tangibly support her work. And that means financially uh, mm-hmm. at HeyBerna.com. Or you can use all the affiliate links that she mentions on her show to buy something to help yourself, to give something. And we all know how affiliate money works. It also puts money back into her pocket. So, you know, we we often talk about supporting each other. And we've all seen that, you know, infographic of, hey, none of this stuff costs money to help your friend. But what's more important than that is actually putting money in your friend's pocket. And so if you have a group, if you have a student group, if you represent schools, if you represent companies, and you think that Berna's message can resonate with your audience, Get her now before her book comes out and her speaking fee goes up. <laughs> oh, Jerry, you're a financial hype man. That was beautiful. I, I, That's exactly it. We, we got we got to do it. And then bring me along for the ride too. So yes. Berna, it's, it's been real. I, it's been an extremely refreshing and uplifting conversation. Love to see you thrive and love to see you being you, most importantly. And I know for a fact that people have been inspired by you, myself at the top of the list, because it's hard doing what we do. Yes. Every damn day, it's maybe mom was right. I should have stayed at X. And <laughs> Structure see, would be nice, huh? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> paychecks too. Yeah, uh, sure Bi-weekly is. paychecks too. Yeah. Um, but to see you do it and to see you thrive, the pie's only going to get bigger. And so best of luck to you. Looking forward to staying connected and having more conversations like this. Uh, big thanks to Michelle again and, and, and to your team at Metro and for everybody else for uh, doing the hard work of setting this up. Thank you. Good luck. And uh, I, I know you posted recently and, and you were very humble about it. I want to end on this note that you exceeded your expected listener downloads yes. by 4x in your first episode. Yes. And, and that is such a huge testament to you and your relatability oh, and your resonance you. because it's not for the dreams. If you record it, they don't listen. Nah. People have to listen, <laughs> resonate, share, and that's how you get to 4X. And so yeah. congratulations to you and your team. I hope Thank this becomes a, a, a new chapter of your life that's exciting. And um, looking forward to more conversations like this, Berna. Thank you. Are you kidding, Jerry? You're the hype man here. This is crazy. I'm going to take, I usually am really weird about listening to myself in podcasts, but I'm going to take this whole thing and listen to it on, on bad days. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Jerry. I'm honored and excited to keep being in community with you and, and the entire Dear Asian Americans family. Thank you. Big thanks to Berna for joining us on the show. You can find Berna anywhere and everywhere on the internet at HeyBerna and HeyBerna.com is where you can find ways to order her book. Again, it's called Money Out Loud. You can find more about us here on Dear Asian Americans at DearAsianAmericans.com. Listen to older episodes on Instagram. We are at Dear Asian Americans, and you can also find us on Facebook and on LinkedIn. You can also find me, Jerry Wan, your host of Dear Asian Americans on LinkedIn. Just search Jerry Wan, W-O-N. On Instagram, I can be found at Jerry J. Wan. Put that initial J in there. And on the internet, jerrywan.com is where you can find more about the work that I do outside of this podcast. Big thanks again to HHS and to McDonald's for their support of Asian American storytelling. And go order that book, Fried by Berna, Money Out Loud, by going to heyberna.com. Hope you're having a wonderful start to December. 
or the wrap-up of November and the start of December, and wishing all of you a very happy, healthy, and safe holiday season. Thanks for listening to Dear Asian Americans.